episode 68 of the Practicology Podcast. We're continuing to take a practical look at the local church by considering some of the ways the New Testament describes the church. And Matthew, I'm liking the title that you've given for today's episode. You're calling it What an Awesome Place. Uh, it's just refreshing for me to, to hear the church spoken of so highly because, as we all know, uh, the local church has taken some knocks, particularly in, in these last two and a half years or so. But here at the Practicology Podcast, we want to help people make the Bible part of their lives, and we want to get a biblical view of the church and a practical understanding of how God wants us to live out his plan for the church. Right, and we've looked at three from 1 Corinthians, the garden, the building, and then the body of Christ. Those were episodes 62, 64, and 66. And today we're looking at the imagery of God's household, which we find in 1 Timothy 3. Yeah, and there Paul writes these words. He says, I write these things to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I know some of our listeners will be more accustomed to hearing that rendered as God's house instead of God's household. And we'll probably use both in our discussion today. But I think it is Jim Allen, a beloved Bible teacher from the UK, now in glory, who points out that consistency of translation in chapter three and the context of the chapter both push us toward the translation, as you've read it, Mike, the household of God or God's household. And the use of household emphasizes what we talked about back in episode 64 when we discussed the church as a building. And that is that in the New Testament era, the house of God is not a physical structure as the Old Testament temple was, but a family of redeemed people, a community of people who have faith in the Lord Jesus. A family of redeemed people. Sounds great, Matthew. Uh, No wonder you're calling this what an awesome place. If the church is a community of brothers and sisters in Christ, what could possibly go wrong? Well, well, plenty, actually. Uh Uh-oh. The episode title isn't actually reflecting the redeemed sinners who make up the church, but the God who resides in the church. Well, that does make more sense. And, And now I think our listeners get what you mean when you use the title, What an Awesome Place. It's not so much awesome as we casually use the word to describe pizza or a vacation, but it's awesome in its original truest sense, something that inspires awe and wonder. The church is God's household and God is awesome. Right. So brothers and sisters, I just want you to pause for a moment and think about this, particularly if you've experienced some tough times in the local church. And you've been thinking, there's nothing awesome about my church. Well, there is something awesome about every church of God. And maybe this is something that we need to recover in our thinking. And if we could recapture this vision of the church, maybe it would enrich our worship and refresh our commitment and bless our relationships with one another. And the awesome thing about every church for us to recover is that God lives there. This is God's household and God is awesome. In fact, the verse right after where Mike finished reading in 1 Timothy 3 should inspire awe and worship within us. After saying that the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth, he reveals that Christ and his gospel are the integral components of that foundation. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the God who lives in the church. And he has made us members of his household. 
Don't lose sight of the fact, beloved, that the coming of Christ has brought about a massive change in our approach to this awesome God. God is still just as awesome and holy as he has always been. But in this dispensation, the Lord Jesus calls us brothers. We call God our Father. And we come into his presence through the blood of Christ with liberty, Hebrews 10. Mike, I feel like you captured that concept well in a recent Q&A article that you wrote. It will be found in the upcoming issue of Truth and Tidings, truthandtidings.com. I'm giving you a little sneak peek into the June edition here, actually, in which you will answer the question, what does it mean for Christ to be in our midst in the setting of Matthew 18 and 20? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember the article. Uh, let me just remind everyone what the verse says. It's, it's, it's where Jesus says, uh, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, or there am I in the midst of them. And you've been drawing out, Matthew, how God's presence is, is awesome. It's awe-inspiring. And here uh, in that article, I, I brought out that, that in Matthew 18, 20, some of the idea of Christ's presence in the church is, is an idea of comfort. Sometimes it can be really hard in the local church. And in the context of Matthew 18, it's a very solemn setting where uh, a member of the church of God's household needs to be disciplined by being excommunicated and being put out of the church. And that involves tons of stress and anxiety and difficulty. And it's, it's heart-wrenching to go through that process. And so Christ is saying, look, when you go through tough things like that, uh, my heavenly authority is with you. My presence is with you as you go through this difficult but essential activity. And so it's a great comfort to have Christ's presence with us in both the highs and lows of life in the church. Thank you. That is helpful. And I want to return to that subject of discipline in the church shortly and leave our listeners some practical reminders about that area of church life. But before we get there, I want to take one more moment to explain more fully our title for today's episode, What an Awesome Place. When the Apostle Paul penned 1 Timothy 3, how to conduct ourselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, he must have had Genesis 28 in mind. Would you agree, Mike? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. What was going on in Genesis 28? Quick quiz for you. Jacob, Jacob was sleeping on a rock and having a dream. Yeah, and when Jacob wakes up from that dream of angels ascending and descending upon a ladder that went up to heaven, he says a couple of fascinating things. Jacob says, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob takes a stone and sets it up as a pillar and calls the place Bethel, which means house of God. So Genesis 28 is the first mention in scripture of the house of God. That's bound to be significant. And you've got a pillar. You've got angels, the fear of God, which is like the New Testament word godliness. So those are all concepts that we get again in 1 Timothy 3. And he says... This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Remember what gates often represent in scripture, government or administration. It was at the, the gate of a city that elders would meet to discuss the government and administration of that city. So this is helpful then. The house of God is to be a place of heavenly government. It's God's administrative center on the earth. This is exactly what you were just pointing out from Matthew 18, Mike, the authority of heaven being carried out on the earth and that's what is to happen in the church. It's God's house. And just like your own household is going to function according to your values, so it is in God's household. The local church should function according to heaven's values. It's like the gate of heaven. That's the noble, awesome privilege and responsibility the local church has. It is an outpost of heaven on the earth, functioning with the very highest authority, our risen head, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, so we got three passages coming together here, uh, Matthew. We got Genesis 28, 1 Timothy 3, and, and once again, you're also echoing the earlier verses of Matthew 18, where the Lord Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And when it comes to church discipline, it is a responsibility every bit as daunting as, as worldwide mission, and it takes great care but it is an important responsibility in the local church. I mean, you've made the comparison to our own family households. And if there was no discipline in our households, they would be chaotic places. To be honest, mine is a chaotic place anyways, but <laughs> it'd be even more so if there was no discipline. And and it's the same in God's household, the church. Right. Thank you for bringing me back to that. The, the house of God must be willing to exercise discipline. Now, when I say willing, I don't mean eager. Don't go jumping all over one another, but we should be willing when it's called for. But remember, discipline doesn't just mean excommunication. I'm worried that we sometimes equate the word discipline to someone being put out of the church. That's actually the last resort. But at times it is it is needed. I think it's actually mentioned in First Timothy chapter one, verse twenty. Paul speaks of delivering someone unto Satan. And that's what the church in Corinth was told to do in 1 Corinthians 5 in a case of gross, unrepentant immorality. Remember part of the purpose of putting that man out? Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I want that man to be saved. It's his spiritual blessing that is really desired by this. So I, I know I don't understand everything about 1 Corinthians 5 or the subject of church discipline, but I would like just to spend a moment highlighting and reinforcing reasons for it. Again, recognize that the word discipline doesn't just mean excommunication. I mean, this can start with, a, with a, an arm around a shoulder and just trying to speak a word of correction. And maybe sometimes it's needing to be a bit more of a rebuke. Maybe it needs to be confronting someone and then maybe bringing someone with you like it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18. But what's on my heart right now is that I'm concerned that sometimes some local churches take a very small and wrong view of church discipline. As if, you know, we just want to punish this bad person and we approach it with an attitude of retribution. Discipline has higher objectives in God's households. Three purposes I see of discipline in God's house. Number one, the honor of the name of Christ. Number two, the preservation and purity of the church. And number three, the spiritual blessing of that individual being disciplined. Whether that spiritual blessing is going to be their repentance unto salvation or restoration, it's to be a help to them, to save them. It's not just that we want to get rid of them. We want to help them. I recall... Uh, a brother, he'd been an elder in another local church, and he spoke to me a little bit of a situation they had faced there. And he said, you know, looking back on that, he said, we failed that brother by not carrying out discipline. And that kind of stuck me like, uh, how did you how did you let him down by not carrying out discipline? But his thinking was that if they had carried out some measure of discipline earlier, they could have saved him from messing up his life further which sadly he did. So discipline is meant to be a help and a blessing to the individual. I think it's Nine Marks publication that uh, they've listed mistakes that uh, 
whoever has written that, mistakes that they have observed that local churches tend to make in re- local churches tend to make in regards to uh, church discipline. And I've just got a, a list of five of them here. I want you to think about them. Failures that we make, mistakes that we make in regards to church discipline. Number one, we fail to teach what it is and why it's necessary. I'd agree with that. The subject is rarely addressed and pre-excommunication aspects are rarely addressed as issues of church discipline. So we fail to teach what it is and why it's necessary. Secondly, we don't clearly instruct the saints on how to interact with the individual under discipline, how to pursue that individual's repentance. And I've seen this on more than one occasion where uh, the saints are a little bit confused as to their role and how they are supposed to be a help to this person and whether they should be involved or not. Thirdly, our stipulations for what qualify as repentance are sometimes too high and we quench a smoldering wick. Think about that. Sometimes we're not ready to bring someone back or to acknowledge their place among the saints again until they've I don't know, we've got some in, something in mind as to how many buckets of tears they're supposed to shed or just as to how holy they're supposed to be living, maybe a standard that's far above our own. And in the end, we're actually discouraging them. Maybe we're just waiting too long. Something to think about. We do want to see true repentance, so I'm not saying it should be rushed either, but we don't want to quench a smoldering wick. Fourthly, We treat it as a legal process at times with little concern for shepherding the unrepentant individual's heart. We can get very obsessed with the issue of, well, we got to do this right, and we got to do it right by the book, as we do want to follow the book. But the book also involves a care for the individual's heart. Fifthly, we forget that we too are sinners, delivered by a gospel of grace, And we carry out this process sometimes in a very self-righteous manner instead of humility and fear. We forget that we too are sinners, delivered by a gospel of grace, and we carry out the process in self-righteousness sometimes instead of in humility and fear. Look, this isn't an easy subject. Um, I don't have all the answers, but treat it carefully, but recognize it is part of our responsibility in God's household. Well, you're right, Matthew. We don't hear uh, teaching and we don't get help on this often. And uh, so that's why I'm really appreciating that you're taking some time to go over these points. These are, these are helpful. These are practical reminders on, on a very difficult subject. And, and you don't have all the answers. I sure don't either, but it is part of our responsibility in God's house where, where heaven's values need to rule. Because the local church is, as, as you put it, heaven's outpost on the earth. What an awesome place this is. Awesome because of our responsibility to be heaven's outpost on earth. And awesome just because it is the place where God resides. That's also inherent in the concept of the house of God. And it's also illustrated in a really neat way in that first mention of the house of God in Genesis 28. I mean, why does Jacob call it the house of God? It's because of what he said in verse 16. The Lord is in this place. Now, why did he say the Lord is in this place instead of pointing to the top of the ladder, which reached up to heaven and say, the Lord is in that place. Why does he say the Lord is in this place where, where I am? Well, verse 13 in Genesis 28 says in the ESV and in the King James version, the, the Lord stood above the ladder, something to that effect. But that's not, 
actually what the first English translation of Genesis 28, 13 said. The Wycliffe Bible near the end of the 1300s when it was put out said, the Lord nighed to the latter. Now, I didn't know nigh could be a verb, but it could be in the 1300s, I guess. So Wycliffe is saying that Genesis is saying the Lord was near to the latter. Several translations, including the ESV, give that sense in the margin, but the CSB actually translate it. The Lord stood beside him. The Lord stood beside Jacob, not at the top of the latter, but right there at the bottom where Jacob was. And Jacob says, the Lord is in this place. And that must be the case. I'm indebted to Dr. David Gooding for this fascinating observation, whose writings we've recently advertised here on the podcast. He says, it's the ministry of angels to go out from God and return back to God. And Genesis 28 says the angels were ascending and descending. They were first ascending. We might have expected them to be descending and ascending, but they were ascending and descending. And they were first ascending, going up because they had been at the bottom where God was. They went out from God to the top of the ladder and they came back to God at the bottom of the ladder because God was right there. Jacob says, this is God's house. We don't visit our houses, Matthew. We we live in them. We dwell in them. So, so God doesn't visit his house either, right? He dwells in it. Right. This there There is a difference between God's presence and his residence and the church as the household of God signifies this is where God resides. God is omnipresent. I think of Psalm 139. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. In other words, God is everywhere. He sees everything. There's no nightclub. There's no idol's temple. There's no dark corner of the earth you can go and say God is absent. But he doesn't dwell in an idol's temple. The church is his dwelling place. It's a special thing, beloved. It's precious. The Lord is in this place. But again, remember, the New Testament is different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Lord's dwelling place was attached to a physical location, tabernacle, the temple. But the New Testament is different. The coming of Christ has made a difference. And in the New Testament, God's residence is attached to that person, the Lord Jesus, who has revealed the name and nature of God to us. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh. Yeah, again, I love uh, this episode because we're we're exalting the the significance of the church in it. But but I also like how you're doing this, Matthew. We're we're seeking to exalt the significance of the church by exalting God, by exalting Christ. He is what makes the church so special. I hope we're doing that, Mike, because that is the point. You're right. And again, that's why I think it's so significant that that hymn of praise to Christ at the end of 1 Timothy 3 comes immediately after the statement that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The ultimate revelation of godliness and holiness that is to mark the church is seen in this person, Christ himself. And I think that's what guards us from seeing holiness as a as a legalistic or a stuffy concept. We We need to see it in Christ. Good. And the truth is we we can't, none of us can become holy apart from fellowship with Christ. But with Christ and with his church, we do need to pursue holiness. This is our third and final lesson today then about the church under the figure of God's household. It is a place of God's government. It's the place of his residence. And it is to be marked by holiness. I could have put this at the start. Maybe I should have. Obviously, it corresponds to our discussion about the need for discipline. But 
one point I'd like to highlight now, remember the house of God is not a building, uh, not a physical building, but it's the people of God, his household. So holiness in God's house isn't limited to our behavior inside the walls of the building where our church meets. And hey, I enjoy how we carry out the Lord's Supper, the structure of that meeting. I enjoy that. It's a wonderful thing. Holiness in God's house, though, isn't about tiptoeing into the Lord's Supper. It's about the character of the people who make up God's house. And we are out there, outside of those walls of the building, far more than we are inside the walls of the church building. And when we are out there, God is still dwelling among us. The church is a spiritual entity. It's not that God comes down for a visit when we meet together. That's maybe when we express that truth. But he resides among his people and we're part of his household 24-7. And in devotion to Christ, we should pursue holiness in every aspect of our lives. First Timothy gives us some examples of the character of the world versus the character of God's household. First Timothy 1, he says, these are the things that are contrary to the sound doctrine of the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. Those who strike their parents and, and murderers, those who practice sexual immorality, human trafficking, lying, those are against the doctrine of the gospel. They are the antithesis of holiness. First Timothy 5 talks about our respect among different generations within the church and different genders in the church. Treat the older men as fathers and the older women as mothers. Treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. The household of God should be a place, should be a group of people, where young women feel safe and respected. Amen. The local church is a place where young women should feel safe and respected. They should never have to worry about awkward touches or hugs that seem to last too long or double-meaning jokes that make them feel uncomfortable. Listen, that, that pervades the world. May the Lord preserve us. It should be a safe place. I'm not trying to make y'all feel paranoid, but we should take godliness seriously. Pursue it for the honor of the name of Christ. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. But if we don't make a big deal about the name of Christ, then we're forgetting the foundation on which we're built. We're not in God's household to build the denominational legacy or to get our way in the church or to proclaim our names, but to preach his name among the nations and to uphold it in the church of the living God. The church as God's household. Thank you, uh, Matthew. This uh, image or metaphor teaches us of God's government over the church, his taking up residence in the church, and the need for us as the church to reflect his holiness. Matthew, thank you for your teaching today, and uh, thank you listeners for joining us week by week on the Practicology Podcast. May the Lord bless you all. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.